Welcome to the Gateway.Live podcast. We're so glad you're here. We pray that God speaks to you through this message and through his word today. For more information about our church, please visit us at www.gatewaylife.com. Now let's tune in. We are wrapping up our series entitled Anchored. Really even bigger than that, we're wrapping up a four-week sermon entitled, What is God Like? This is part four of that four-part message. Now remember, uh, this entire series has been on theology, which just means the study of God. And what I've tried to do is take a, a portion of systematic theology and make it a little bit more palatable for all of us to digest. And, and the reason behind that is because most people think that theology is for the smart people. Theology is not for the smart people. It's for all of God's people. As I've said before, any lover of God is called to be a studier of God. And that's all theology is. And so we've, in essence, been over the last month taking a look at the photo album of all of the images God has recorded and revealed about himself so that we can understand what God is like. So since this is part four, the first point is not point number one, it is actually point number 18. For those of you keeping up, if you didn't get notes, you can just put your hand up. If you want notes, we have notes to follow along. Uh, we have them at the door. So if you didn't get any notes, you can just put your hand up and somebody will bring them to you or you can steal them out of the hands of the person sitting next to you, all right? All right, let's start with point number 18. When we answer the question, what is God like? We must talk about the faithfulness of God. Our God is faithful. Listen to this biblical definition of the word faithful that's just awesome. Faithful means staunchly loyal and completely consistent in commitment. Think about that. Your God is completely consistent no matter what in his commitment towards you. That is really good news. Let me show you a couple of passages related to the faithfulness of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9. God is faithful. Drop the mic. Black and white. God is faithful. Here's what that means. There has never been a moment where he was anything other than faithful. He's never been unfaithful. He will never understand what it's like to be unfaithful because our God is faithful. By whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Psalm 119, verse 90, speaking of God. Your faithfulness extends to every generation, as enduring as the earth you created. His faithfulness extends to every generation. Here's another way to say that. His faithfulness never takes a day off. It extends to every generation for all mankind. It's as enduring as the earth he created. Now, I think when, when we take view of God's faithfulness with this very thing in mind, we appreciate it even more. If we really are honest about our fear of experiencing unfaithfulness. Some of us, more than others, have a fear of being cheated on, of being in a relationship with someone who would be unfaithful towards us, that we would love them, but they would become in a moment unfaithful to us. And some of us don't admit that, but we behave like it constantly. If you've been cheated on, there's a chance you have a little bit of a flinching mechanism as it relates to faithfulness, even God's. Now, to illustrate this, I'll kind of just let you in 
a little bit uh, into my marriage going back about 17 years. Uh, Holly and I had not even been married three years. And in the middle of the night one night, I was awakened to kicking in the side of my body and kind of slapping my back and my shoulder. And I mean, I, I came to and, and went, what, what is going on? Is our apartment burning down? What, what's the matter? And here's what she says. How could you do this to me? It's like 3.30 in the morning. I was dead asleep. I said, how can I do what to you? And she is kicking me still. I said, what did I do? She said, how could you cheat on me? I said, woman, <laughs> it is the middle of the night. I have done no such thing. And she's getting emotional. How could you do this to me? And of all the girls, why her? I said, who? I don't even know who I cheated with. And she's, now she's getting emotional. And now my ornery side is, is kicking into my empathetic side, which happens like once every 10 years on the calendar. And I put my hands on her shoulder. I said, babe, babe, babe. Hey, I did not cheat on you. I am too afraid of you to do that. <laughs> Go back to sleep. It was just a dream. She goes back to sleep. I go back to sleep. I wake up in the morning. She wakes up in the morning. And my hope was that those comforting words in the middle of the night settled the dispute. But it became obvious very quickly she was still bothered by my supposed infidelity. I said, good morning, babe. How are you? Fine. Cold shoulder, what did I do? No. What? I go to work. I come back home. I'm texting her throughout the day. Baby, I love you. <laughs> Nothing is working. I get home. I try and give her a hug. She's like, babe, this is ridiculous. I said, honey, I realize you feel like that dream was real, but it did not happen. Please stop punishing me for something I did not do, okay? Now, why did it hit her in such a deep place? Because maybe without even realizing it, she had a deep down fear of being cheated on, that I would be unfaithful to her. Without realizing it, I think some of us feel that way about God. And what is our, our typical behavior when we're afraid of loving someone who might not love us back faithfully? We keep them at a distance. And unfortunately, there are a lot of people in church who are keeping God at a distance because they've been hurt by somebody else before and they're putting the sin of that person upon God. And listen, your God is completely, perfectly faithful. Now, some of us have this feeling about faithfulness. Well, if you're faithful, I'll be faithful. But if you're unfaithful, Holmes, I'm out. I, I, I am not going to be faithful to you if you're not faithful to me. Okay, I have a term for that. It's called fickle faithfulness. And God is not that kind of faithful. And this is really good news. If you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. Because God is faithful, his faithfulness is not pre pre predicated Sorry, upon your behavior or your being faithful. 
His faithfulness is not predicated upon you being faithful. Let me show it to you in Scripture, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13. If we are unfaithful, he, God, remains faithful, for he cannot deny who he is. Now, what is a beautiful picture of the faithfulness of God in Scripture? Jesus tells the story of the prodigal son. The acceptance the father gives to the prodigal son when he returns home is a beautiful picture of God's grace. But the way the father behaves while the prodigal son is gone is a beautiful picture of God's faithfulness. Here's another way to say it if you're taking notes, write this down. He's the father, speaking of God, who never leaves the front porch even when his child rebelliously walks out the front door. He is always faithful, no matter what. Even when we are unfaithful, it does not change the fact that God is completely faithful. Hebrews 10, 23 says this, let us hold fast then the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. My faithfulness is something God deserves far more than he would ever demand. He could demand faithfulness from us as his children. You better be faithful to me if you want me to be faithful to you. He does not demand faithfulness. Why? Because he deserves our faithfulness far more than he could ever demand it. He deserves it. He's our faithful God. And when you get a revelation of the faithfulness of God, it inspires you to be even more faithful. It brings us to the 19th answer to the question, what is God like? We have to talk about the goodness of God. Our God is good. A.W. Tozer describes the goodness of God like this. It is that which disposes God to be kind, cordial, benevolent, and full of goodwill toward us. Here's another way to say it. God is a gentleman. He's a gentleman. And he is a gentleman towards everyone. He is kind, cordial, benevolent. Some of us think that he is this angry God with a furrowed brow. He is a good God. And my badness doesn't change his goodness. That's really good news because I got some badness up in here. His goodness is not determined by my badness. It's determined by his goodness and that alone. Psalm 145 verse 9 says, The Lord is good to everyone, not just to some, not just to his favorites. He doesn't play favorites. He is good to everyone. He showers compassion on all of his creation. Now, let me ask you a, a theologically loaded question. Does God hear the prayer of a horrible person doing horrible things who is not saved? Does God hear their prayer? Well, of course, most of you are saying yes, because you think that's the right answer. But that's not really my question. Do you actually believe this? See, God hears prayers because he is good not because the prayer or the person is good. It's because he is good that he hears our prayers. Matthew chapter 5, verse 45 says, For God gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. Now, this is hard for me to wrap my mind around, if I were to be completely honest, because 
there are those moments where deep down I really want God to be the ruler of a meritocracy, where his blessings are based on my behavior. Because then I could just keep earning it. I could just keep flipping that switch and getting him to bless me. But if I were to really sit down and break that down theologically, I really don't want that kind of agreement because scripture says very clearly, there is not one good among us. No, not one. Now, here's why that's important to understand next to the goodness of God. The goodness of God is the basis for every blessing he bestows, not the goodness of man. It is not your goodness that is the basis of God's blessing you. It is God's goodness that is the underpinning, the foundation of his why for blessing you. So why do some of us get wrapped up in a works-based mentality where God is good when I am good? I see God's goodness when I am good, but when I'm bad, I don't see his goodness. Listen, God is good to all. If God were good to only some, he wouldn't be good. Now, I want to address uh, some bad theology related to how some see the goodness of God. Some people see the goodness of God like this. When things are good, God is good. Well, if I'm to play that out, the other side of the coin is this. When things are bad, what does that make God? Bad. But God is either good or bad. He can't be both. He's either good or bad. Listen, there is no darkness in him at all, Scripture says. He is all good, completely good, which is good news for us. I call this circumstantial goodness. As long as my circumstances are good, then that means God is good. But that's, that's not how God works. I want to show you probably one of the more famous verses in Scripture Related to the goodness of God, you hear this quoted a lot. Psalm 34, verse 8 says this. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see that the Lord is good. You hear that from time to time. Somebody say, I'm going to taste and see that the Lord is good. Okay, if you were to study this verse, this word taste does not mean sip or nibble. It means engorge yourself. It means throw down like Charlie Brown. I'll explain. This is a phrase I use when we go to Las Vegas, and the really only reason I like to go to Las Vegas is the buffets. Because the steward in me is more than happy to spend $50 on a buffet when I know I'm going to eat $300 worth of crab legs. It's just good math, right? So my family knows when we sit down at the table at a buffet, they're going to hear this phrase, I am about to throw down like Charlie Brown. And I remember my, my oldest son, the first time he heard me say that, he said, Daddy, what does that even mean? I said, I have no idea, but I'm about to do it. I'm about to eat until I make myself sick. I'm about to taste and see that the Lord is good. Okay. God is, in a sense, confidently through the psalmist in Psalm 34 saying, I'm not afraid of your high expectations of me. Because no matter how high your expectations of my goodness are, my goodness is so much better than you could wrap your mind around. Taste and see. Here's another way to say it. Try it for yourself, you'll never be let down. 
It's a solid verse. Taste and see that the Lord is good. But some of us who believe God is good when things are good, finish Psalm 34 at verse 8 and don't go down another 11 verses. Let me just read to you verse 19, what the psalmist says in the same run as talking about tasting and seeing the goodness of God. Psalm 34 verse 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous. Do you feel encouraged? Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. This isn't in your notes, but if you're taking notes, I want you to write this one-liner down. The afflictions of the righteous will never negate the goodness of God. No matter how bad things get in your life, that does not change the fact that your God is still completely good. No matter how bad things get, doesn't mean he's out of control. He's working these things together for your good. You gotta trust him. He's a good God. He's not a a vengeful, mean God. We are in complete error when we believe God is not good when things are not good. David says it like this in Psalm 23, verse 6. Surely, and this word literally means 100%. I am absolutely, positively convinced. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the good days of my life. Is that what it says? Nope. Surely, goodness and mercy are going to follow me because my God is so rich in mercy and so overwhelmingly good. His goodness and mercy are going to follow me all the days of my life, no matter what. In good times and in bad, God is completely good. Now, really quickly, I want to address something a statement I made a couple minutes ago. God is a gentleman. And this really, because we're talking about the goodness of God, I wanna cover this because it grieves me when I see this behavior in public. Have you ever gone to a sporting event and on the way into the stadium from the parking lot, you see somebody on a bullhorn screaming and yelling at people that if they don't know Jesus, they're gonna burn in hell. How many of us have seen that before? Okay. Can I just remind you, God is a gentleman. Let me read you a verse that backs this up. Romans chapter two, verse four. Or do you despise the riches of God's goodness, his forbearance, his long-suffering, loving patience towards you is what this means? Not knowing that it's the goodness of God that leads you to repentance? Okay. If it's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance, why would man ever think that meanness would get somebody there? Listen, you have lost friends all around you in your life. The last thing they need you to become is a jerk when you start talking about their sin. Do you want God to be a jerk towards you when he talks about your sin? I don't think so. We need to be kind, gracious, cordial, especially with our lost friends, and especially as we talk about their sin. It doesn't mean we, we endorse their sin, but it does mean we're trying to reflect God's heart towards them, not just towards sin. Is it theologically accurate for someone to say that someone who doesn't know Jesus and they die is not going to heaven? Yes. I'm not arguing with the screaming preacher on the street corner yelling in anger at people that they're burning in hell if they don't know Jesus. 
I'm not arguing theologically. What I'm arguing over is their method. Their method does not reflect God's heart. God is a gentleman, and his children should behave as such because that's what goodness looks like, no matter the badness of the other person. A good God uses his goodness to lead us to repent, not his meanness and madness. That brings us to the 20th point. When we answer the question, what is God like, we have to talk about the grace of God. We have to talk about the fact that God is gracious. The word grace in scripture means unmerited favor, blessing, or kindness. Grace is God giving us a blessing we don't deserve. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Then he goes on to describe it. Here's what it looks like. That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. That you, through his poverty, might become rich. This is one of my favorite verses that illustrates the loving grace of God. He set aside his riches, came down to earth, embraced poverty in a fallen world so that I might become rich. And I'm not talking about financially for all eternity. That I might experience the richness of God's mercy and grace. This is what Jesus did for us. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 16 says, Let us therefore then come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. Mercy is God's goodness related to what I do deserve. Think about how often we talked about this two weeks ago, that God in his mercy doesn't give me what I do deserve. I deserve nasty punishment eternal punishment. In his mercy, he does not give me the punishment I deserve. But grace is God's goodness related to what I don't deserve. It's when he bestows blessings upon me that I do not deserve. Now, I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this point because I did an entire series on the grace of God not too long ago. And you can go back and listen to that. It was a fun, nearly two-month series that we did on the grace of God. But I was trying to find a way to illustrate the grace of God. And I, I'll kind of let you in on where, where things are for us as a family right now. Uh, I am known as a nerdy researcher, okay? Like I am, I'm really bad as it comes to research. If my child says to me, Daddy, for my birthday, I want a scooter, it's like something pops into my head, this thought that says, you must become the world's foremost learned man as it relates to $130 scooters on the planet. So I research them all, okay? Well, I do that with our family vacations. And typically, I'll start researching next year's family vacation a year in advance. So we've been talking about going to Disney World for the first time. And so I have made it my number one calling in life outside of ministry to rob Walt Disney on my family vacation. Like, I'm going to study every nook and cranny of how to beat Walt Disney financially. And after a couple of weeks of studying Walt Disney World, one thing has become very apparent, that Walt Disney World exists to rob me. <laughs> but I'm not going to give up. I am still going to try to find the best way to save money to take my family to Disney World. 
So in studying Disney World, I came across this incredible illustration randomly about the grace of God. This pastor was telling a story that he had adopted. He and his wife had adopted an eight-year-old little girl. And she had been adopted by several families before theirs, but her behavior was so bad that the other families put her back up for adoption. In other words, sent her back. And the family before his family that adopted this little girl had an annual family tradition. They went to Disney World. And while she was in their home, they went to Disney World twice. And both times, when the family was getting ready to go to Disney World, they dropped the adopted daughter off at a friend's house to stay behind. This little girl didn't understand why she couldn't go, but she figured that it was her behavior That because she was a bad girl, she didn't get to go to Disney World like the rest of the family. Well, the pastor doesn't know this. The girl's behavior uh, early in their home is very, very bad. It's acting out, lashing out. And one night at the family dinner table, he makes the announcement, we're going to go to Disney World for a day in a month. And the pastor, as he's telling the story, he said, you know, I thought this announcement to this eight-year-old little girl would cause her behavior to immediately improve. Truth be told, her behavior got far worse. She began hurting her older sister. She even stole from her mother. She was doing things we had never seen her do, and we thought we'd seen some pretty harsh stuff. The closer we got to going to Disney World, the worse she got. And he said, I wanted to keep her home. I wanted to punish her. I knew she wanted to go. But my wife and I decided we were still going to take her. We get to Disney World. Her behavior that morning completely changed. Sweet, kind, endearing, all day long. The end of a very long day, the little girl's exhausted. The pastor is tucking her in. And he says, Sonny, can I ask you a question? Your behavior for the last month has been atrocious. Why did it change today? What changed that turned you into this sweet, kind little girl? The eight-year-old girl begins to tell her adopted father the story of the family before, who went to Disney World without her, and she believed that the reason she didn't get to go is because she was a bad girl. And she thought, since that happened before, it was gonna happen again, so why not just be a really bad girl? If they're not going to let me go, just make them suffer. This is an eight-year-old little girl. She says, Daddy, do you know what I learned at Disney World today? That the reason I got to be here at Disney World was not because of my good behavior. It's because I'm yours. It wasn't because I was good. It's because I'm yours. Listen, you can be really bad sometimes. And I can too. But here's what's amazing about God's grace. Even when I am bad, he is still good and gracious. Well, Preston, that seems too good to be true. You're exactly right. And that's how you know you're getting on track to understanding a little bit about who our God is. When you get to the place where you say, he just seems too good to be true, that's exactly right. But he's not. It's just who he is. 
our God is gracious. That leads us to the last 21st point of this four-week message, what is God like? When we answer this question, we must talk about the fact that our God is love. We have to talk about the love of God. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Now let me just say theologically, I've heard some spiritual types who are not believers in Jesus use this one verse to say, God is love, therefore love is God, which means everything that is love is God. That is not what the Bible is saying. The Bible is saying God is His nature is complete love. Total, perfect love. He is love. He is entirely loving is another way to say it. 1 John 3 verse 1 says, Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, upon you, that we, you, should be called children, a child of God. How amazing is it that God would bestow his love upon you. The God who holds the oceans in the palm of his hand is divinely obsessed and in love with you. Now, I just want to say in this last point of this four-week message that the burden I feel like God gave me was for somebody watching this online well after I preached this message. And you're on the fence about God's love. And it's not because you're ignorant. It's simply because you don't fully understand how obsessed the God of the universe is with you. And so I want you just to open up your heart and to hear just a few facts about God's love towards you and the rest of us. Here's the first thing. God's love is unrivaled. John 3.16, for God so loved. That word so is an important qualifier. God so loved the world. Here's another way to say that. There is no one else getting in line, laying down their firstborn, their begotten son, to die for you that you might live. Nobody else is doing that. None of your friends, not your spouse, not your children, not your parents. No one is loving you like God. John 15, verse 13. Jesus says, greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. Jesus says, hey, go one further. Anybody personally dying for you? Nope, just me. That's because I love you more than anybody else does. Now, from time to time, I hear people say things like this. No one loves me more than so-and-so. Nobody in my life loves me more than so-and-so. And it's actually an incorrect statement when they point at a human and say, Well, no one loves me more than my husband. No one loves me more than my dad. It's actually an incorrect statement, and let me help you understand how. Comparing the love of the human who loves you most to the love God has for you is like comparing a penny to all the dollars on the planet. Oh, they love me so much. Yeah, they do. I'm not calling that into question. But when you compare the love they have for you compared to the love God has for you, it's not even a contest. It's a penny compared to all of the dollars on the planet. Why? Because God's love is completely unrivaled. Here's the next thing. God's love is unfathomable. 
Paul in Ephesians chapter 3 makes a really strong statement about God's love. In verse 18, he says, may you have the power to understand as all God's people should. Unfortunately, Paul does not say as all God's people do. He says, I wish they did. My prayer is that you would have the power to understand as all believers should. What should we understand? How wide, how long, how high, and how deep God's love is. May you experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to understand fully. What is so hard to understand about the love of God? That a God so big, that a God so powerful, that a God who knows everything looks at you and says, my heart is attached to you. My heart is emotionally attached to you. That's unfathomable. I mean, it's almost kind of like the nerdy kid at the dance that we've seen in the movies. And the beautiful, popular prom queen looks in his direction and says, come dance with me. And he's like, is this a cruel joke? Do you know who I am? I'm a nobody. She says, yeah, come on. Listen, I know we like to play like we're big time, but deep down, most of us feel just like that little boy. I know I do. My heart's been stomped on before. So any and every time God looks in my direction and says, come here, come be with me. There's a part of me that goes, me? Like, do you know what I did this week? Me? Yeah, yeah, come on. Come be with me. Come away with me. That is unfathomable. And if we ever look at it and go, oh yeah, God loves me. It's just evidence that you don't understand. How wide, how high, how deep, how long God's love for you is. Here's the next thing. God's love is unconditional. This is important. God's love is unconditional. What does that mean? His love is not based on a condition. Romans chapter 5 verse 8 says, but God demonstrates his own love toward us, towards you, towards me, and that while we were still ugly, nasty sinners, Christ died for us. He sent Christ to die for you. Even though he knew about all of your sin, he still showed his love towards you. Why? Because his love is unconditional. That's hard for many of us to understand because our love oftentimes is totally conditional. If you do this, I'll love you more. That's not how God operates. His love is completely unconditional, which means no matter what, no matter how you trip, no matter how you fall, it's not gonna change his love for you. The big question is, do we behave like that? Or when we mess up, are we convinced he's gonna love us a little bit less? Never forget, God's love for you is completely unconditional conditional. Here's the last thing. God's love is unrelenting. God's love is unrelenting. Romans chapter 8 verse 38. Paul says, for I am persuaded. The word means absolutely, certifiably convinced. I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing 
Nothing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do we get that? Nothing, nothing could ever separate us from the love of God. Why? Because his love is too strong for you. Nothing can stop it. Not even you. Not even your running away from him could stop his love for you. He is a faithful and good God that constantly loves you, even when you're messing up. Now, I want you to do something at the end here. We're, we're going to have a time of worship, and we're going to take communion individually. And so if you're on the end of your section, to your right, my left, I want you to pick up the, the little black receptacle there, and I want you to grab a communion cup, and I want you to pass it down your row. Now hold that communion cup. Don't take it yet. I'm going to give everybody a chance to get one. If you don't want to participate, that's okay. Let me just say, I know you're used to passing the the black bucket across to put your trash back in. We're not going to do it that way this week and just hold on to it till the end of the service. When we dismiss, there are trash receptacles. At every exit, you can just throw them away, all right? It'd be a huge help to us. Once you have your communion cup, I want you just to close your eyes. Just close your eyes. I want to try and paint the picture the Lord painted for me for this moment at the end of a month-long journey together. Looking through the photo album of all of the snapshots God has taken of himself and revealed to us, letting us know what he's like. Like obsessed lovers, we've been looking through this photo album not to try and, you know, uh, confirm what we thought about God, but to discern who God really is according to what he reveals to us about himself. Everything we know about God is because he revealed it to us. And for a month, we've been going through the photo album of all of the snapshots related to these 21 attributes, not all of the snapshots of all of his attributes, we've been going through these 21 for the last four weeks. Here's the picture I felt like the Lord gave me for this moment in every service at both campuses. That the God of the universe got here early in the room where you presently find yourself. He got here early because he knew you would be here. And he sat in the seat next to you. And in that seat, he sits with this massive book. Your first thought is, I wonder if that's the Lamb's book of life. So you ask him, hey, what's that? Is that the Lamb's book of life? Can you show me my name? God says, That's not the book I hold today. And he opens it up. And you say, God, what book is this? He says, this is the photo album I keep for you. I have taken a snapshot of every millisecond of your entire life. And he begins to thumb through thousands upon thousands of pictures in front of you. This is the first time you lost a hair. Preston, for you, that happened in your mother's womb. 
Oh, look at this. This was your first dirty diaper. Oh, look at this one. Look at this one. This is your first day of kindergarten. Look at those teefers. And he goes on and on. And then you see some pictures that are whited out completely. You say, God, what, what's that? That was the moment where you sinned. I covered that. Don't worry. I've made it white as snow. Look at this next one. This was your first track me. This was your first moment alone in my presence where you cried. And I captured every tear in a bottle. The God of the universe is sitting next to you, trying to communicate. Not who he is in this moment, but how obsessed he is with you. It's as though you're sitting in a restaurant, the most expensive and extravagant restaurant on the planet. The God of the universe is at the table and he only wants you sitting with him. The meal you're going to share is the single most expensive meal in all of humanity. The body and blood of Jesus Christ trumps any filet, any piece of fish you'll ever have in your life. The God of the universe wants to sit with you right now, share a meal together. The one meal that communicates just how much he loves you more than any other meal. So let's just take some time in the presence of our God, sitting at his table, listening to what he says, partaking in this meal together. Let's be with him. Your love. 
Thanks for joining us on Gateway.Live. For more information about Gateway Church, please visit us at www.gatewaylife.com.